You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Uh, just like normal, if you've got kids up to second grade that you are sending to one of the classes, you can let them go now, and they'll meet up with their teachers there in the back of the room. Uh, you can walk with them if you want to, but their teachers are there, and uh, they'll keep worshiping uh, over there, and we'll keep worshiping here. Uh, if you would, get to Genesis chapter 23 in your Bibles. As you're getting there, I want to um, just point out that we have, um, uh, there's almost always going to be someone who's sick um, in a group this size, and uh, right now there's actually several people who are sick, some of them very sick, and um, some of them have been struggling with certain sicknesses for a long time. Uh, even maybe years, uh, and you may know of people, uh, friends that you have uh, in the church who have been struggling in that way, but uh, it's just on my heart this morning to pray for those people who are struggling with sickness um, of all different kinds. Uh, the scriptures talk about uh, various kinds of suffering or various kinds of trials, and sickness is included in that, something that the Lord allows in our lives um, that uh, points us to our need of Him and uh, gives us an opportunity to love and support and care for one another. So uh, would you, just before we begin to go to the Word, would you uh, go with me in prayer to the Lord? And let's pray for those people who are struggling with sickness. Lord, there are so many names that could be named, and I know that I, I don't even know all of them. People who are our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sickness, if it's something that's just been going on for days or something that's been for months or even years, Lord, we know that we have all of those kinds of cases here in our family. And so, Lord, we want to, as your word says, present those people to you and intercede for them and ask if you will please by your own hand touch them and make them well. well. We know that you have that kind of power, and we know that it pleases you to do good to your children and to give good gifts to your children. So, uh, Lord, we ask, would you please intercede? Would you please intervene in their lives and touch them and heal their bodies? But, Lord, we ask for more than just a uh, <clears throat> temporary kind of physical healing with that lost song we sang and the scripture from Thessalonians and from Matt's prayer and from this thing that you've put on our hearts about sickness, Lord, we realize that there is a much greater and an eternal healing that we're all looking for. We ask that you would do that work as well in their hearts to bring a spiritual healing along with that physical healing and that you would draw them to yourself and encourage their hearts in the midst of their suffering. Lord, we ask also, uh, thinking of what your word says about suffering and sickness and, and what the purpose of all of it is, Lord, we ask that it wouldn't be wasted, but that it would have its purpose and be fulfilled by causing the sick person to be sanctified, to more purely reflect 
the image of Christ and bring him glory and honor. And even in the midst of their suffering, Lord, we ask that you'd put that in their hearts as well and accomplish that work. Lord, we love you and we look to you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so, Genesis chapter 23. Now, if you haven't been following along with us, um, I'll just try to very, very briefly get you up to speed. God has created the earth. God has put people in it. Those people have failed by rebelling against God, sinning against Him, breaking His command. And, and through their breaking of His command, there was a breaking of fellowship with Him. And the breaking of fellowship came because sin came into their hearts. Sin came into the world through sinners. And through that sin, all of humanity was infected, was fractured, creation is broken. It's even, uh, creation is even rebelling against the work of human beings to survive in it. So uh, God told the first man, Adam, you're going to toil, you're going to work, but instead of the fruit you're looking for, there's going to be thorns and thistles for you, which of course today in a not real agricultural society, but more of a, a labor force, intellectual kind of labor society, we can still feel the effects of that, that when you put yourself to a task, you can almost feel the task fighting against you. As people lived in the world, sin and corruption increased to the point that God was so grieved by it, he decided to hit the reset button by flooding the entire earth and killing every human being except for one family, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. He uh, gave them plans, gave them miraculous strength uh, to be able to build an ark, and they went into the ark with many animals Uh, from the earth, and they were saved from this flood, and the Lord uh, started everything over. From that time on, there was this uh, line of humanity that God had His eye on and had plans for, including a man named Abraham. And Abraham was originally born as Abram and had a wife named Sarai. Abram and Sarai were pagans. They were idolaters. They were moon worshipers and human sacrificers in a place called Ur. Ur was a very, uh, for thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, a pretty cosmopolitan city. It was a cultural center. And God spoke to Abram there and called him out of Ur and told him he was going to make him into a great nation and that he should follow him now into a land where he was going to show him. So Abram, later called Abraham, and his wife, later called Sarah, followed God to this land called Canaan that was inhabited with all kinds of uh, foreigners, kings, and villages and cities uh, who were godless. And Abram, Abraham settled there with his wife uh, and their people, and God was very generous to them and, and made them very great for sojourners dwelling in tents made them very great among these people, and uh, that's where we find ourselves here, uh, is with Abraham having settled in this place now for decades, and, and, a, and decades of history here of God interacting with Abraham and his wife Sarah to bring promises to them. And God would come and he would say uh, something like, I'm going to give you an heir, I'm going to give you a son. 
And now God has fulfilled that promise by bringing Isaac. He told him that he was going to give him land, this land that he's dwelling in now. But he hasn't realized yet that fulfillment of that promise. He's still dwelling here in tents uh, at relative peace with the people around him. I think um, not only just because of the kind of of miraculous grace of God to protect him and kind of hedge him in, but also because Abraham had engaged in battle with certain people who were opposing him and had been victorious. And so I think there was just even just a sense of general respect about Abraham and uh, his fierceness to protect his family. So now, Abraham and Sarah have been living for decades 62 years, I think, now, catching up to where we've been. 62 years they've been living in Canaan, out of Ur. And most of the history that we know of them has happened in that 62 years. They've been living together, Abraham and Sarah. They've loved each other. They've had their spats, their disagreements. They've stumbled along the way. But here they are in Genesis chapter 23, uh, Sarah, 127 years old, Abraham, 137 years old, nearing the end of their days. We pick it up in chapter 23. If you would follow along the entire chapter with me, and then we're going to stop and just ask the Lord again for some help. Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed toward the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephraim, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephraim at Machpelah, was given, uh, which was given 
uh, sorry, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's ask the Lord to help us here. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power, for even its presence here among us, that we have your word in our laps, Lord. What a grace and a miracle from you. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for how you have taught it to us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. We, we're in need of supernatural help here this morning. Lord, I think if we were all honest, we would have to confess that as we came to this place, many of us came out of routine and not out of seeking. Some of us came out of desperation, out of pain, looking for an answer. Some of us came with joy in our hearts, eager to see what you would do this morning. Lord, we all came here in need of you. Please, God, meet with us. Please work in our hearts. Please exalt yourself among us. Let us be transformed in our hearts, made more like you in our character. Please teach us, Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, if I could, I know I've given some of like a, a recap up to this point, but at the beginning of this chapter, we're just all of a sudden interrupted with news of Sarah's death. She's been a staple here in this narrative about Abraham, always there, sometimes supportively there, sometimes mockingly there. Uh, but always there, and we know from the Scriptures that she's remembered as a faithful woman, a woman who trusted God, who loved God, and was counted righteous because of her faith in God. So this interruption is a bit abrupt, and, and if you weren't looking for it, um, it, it may catch you off guard in the flow of the text, and you wonder where we go from here, uh, and, and where we go from here really is quite amazing as we observe Abraham and his faith. Um, but before we move on from Sarah, uh, because we notice, of course, that Abraham just doesn't wistfully move on, let's put ourselves in Abraham's place, if we can, and remember what Abraham would have been remembering here at the death of his wife. I want to throw your minds back to a reminder of all that Abraham and Sarah have been through together up to this point. Remember that they were called out of idolatry to follow the true and living God. And they made a choice together. Abraham as the leader of his family, Sarah as his wife, they made a choice together that they would go together. Imagine how easy it would have been for Sarah to just uh, dismiss her husband as some kind of madman 
being called out by the voice of God to some foreign land and promised a son. But she went with him to follow the true and living God, called out of their homeland Ur to a foreign, faraway country. took them a long time to get there, and the journey was treacherous. They faced danger in Egypt. They faced danger in Canaan, even battles. Sarah, even twice along their journey, being taken in as a wife of a foreign king, and they had to trust the mercy of God to find their way out of those pinches. Their nephew, Lot, choosing the best of the land and leaving them with the scraps. Abraham going to war against pagan kings who had taken the same nephew as a captive, coming home victoriously to his wife. She was waiting all those days, waiting to see if her husband would return to him. The voice of God to Abraham speaking unthinkably wonderful promises about a son to be born in their old age and a land to be given to their descendants. Walking together in faith that God would actually fulfill these promises. Imagine as married people trusting in God and walking together for years and years and years waiting to realize the things that God had spoken. Stumbling together at times to believe that God can actually do the impossible. They stumbled together sometimes. They stumbled as individuals. In either case, they were always there for each other. Of course, Sarah's famous stumbling block was her doubt that caused her to give Hagar, her servant, to Abraham as a, ser- as a wife to kind of uh, shortcut this path to an heir, to a son. She said, perhaps in this way God will give me a son. And then together experiencing the pain of the fallout from that faithless decision, Ishmael being born, God sending Hagar and Ishmael away, the pain that it caused Abraham and his heart to send them away. Abraham experiencing lunch with God and his angels under a tree, and God finally setting a due date for Isaac to come. Sarah still with her suspicions, still with her doubts, but looking to God and looking to her husband to lead her in faith. Then the birth of their son Isaac when Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham 100 years old, raising their son together as sojourners in a foreign country, a very unstable situation. And then finally, just the gut-wrenching call of God as a test of Abraham's faith to take his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved, and offer him as a burnt sacrifice to God on a place where he would show him a three-day journey. Isaac carrying on his back the wood that would be set on fire to burn him before the Lord. Sarah waiting at home to see what would happen. But both of them together believing, the Scriptures say, that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead in order to fulfill the promises that were made about him. We think of Abraham all the time. Imagine Sarah at home for days. In fact, if it's a three-day journey out to the place where Isaac would be sacrificed, and then it took a day to worship and three days to return, 
a full week of waiting without cell phones, without even a pager, without any news, watching in the direction from where Abraham left for him to return back over the horizon. Would there be Abraham and only the two young men? Or would she see a fourth figure? And then, a mother's joy as God in his grace proves himself trustworthy again. As Hebrews says, it was even as if they did receive Isaac back from the dead. That's what she experienced. For all she knew, Abraham had been sacrificed, burned to ashes, and then raised from the dead to make the return journey home to greet her again. Now, after over a hundred years of marriage, you hear that? Over 100 years of marriage together. 62 years since they followed the voice of God and left Ur, Abraham bows to the ground and mourns and weeps for his wife. I am still looking forward to my 15th anniversary next July. I can't imagine the depth of grief and loneliness that Abraham would have felt the moment that Sarah breathed her last. His partner, his traveling mate, the mother of his only son. Who else knew Abraham's heart, Abraham's struggles, Abraham's strengths, the way Sarah did? No one did. So when Moses, recording this, says on purpose, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Please understand, this isn't like when Jesus was called to the home of a little girl who had died and all the house was filled with mourners. This isn't the same kind of mourning that's just ceremonial, that's just functional, that's just kind of obligatory. This was deep, deep, heartfelt mourning at the loss of his wife of over a hundred years. Death is the common thread woven through this passage. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, there's 12 times where the death of Sarah, of Sarah or the burial of Sarah is referred to. The death of her, the burial. Let me go and bury my dead. Go ahead, bury your dead. Oh, but let me pay the full price to bury my dead. Give me a cave to bury her in. What is that between you and me? Go bury your dead. Bury your dead. Over and over again throughout this chapter, we're reminded of the death of Sarah, the death of Sarah, the death of Sarah. And that's on purpose. Please don't see that as just some byproduct or some side note in the text. This is meant to draw you in to the grief of Abraham. She's dead. She's dead. He's got to bury her. He's got to bury her somewhere. The reality of it sinking in for him is meant to sink in 
to our hearts that life on this, on this earth is very much temporary. Abraham was obviously grieved by missing her, as you can imagine, just remembering everything they've been through together. But there's actually something happening here in this text and in the heart of Abraham, something faithful and something hopeful, something of eternal significance that we need help from God to understand. So that's where we're going to turn our hearts this morning, not away from the death of Sarah, but what it was that was rising up in the heart of Abraham and what rises up in this text when we really embrace and feel the grief of Sarah's death. Verse 17, I want to point out to you that the land was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of all the Hittites. Now, you may be wondering, why would we get this kind of back and forth? It it seems like haggling, but it's the kind of haggling between people who really respect and love each other. It's like trying to outdo one another and showing honor, which I know we always struggle with in the church. Like, how do we fight about honoring one another? You are the greatest friend that I've ever known. No, that couldn't be, man. That couldn't be because you know you. You know you, and you are the greatest friend that you've ever known. You're just the best. And it gets really cheesy and awkward when we try to outdo each other sometimes, or like it can seem kind of contrived. But this is an instance where two men are going back and forth seeking to do good to one another. But it's not just a formality. Ephraim here is not just like, hey, whoa. Listen, this is the dude who slaughtered that village over there, all right? Just give him the field. That's not what's happening here. He is seeking to honor Abraham, who's been sojourning in tents for decades outside of their city and has been revealed as a prince of God among them, an honorable man, a respectable man, who is very advanced in years at this point. So a lot of respect and honor is owed to him. And Ephraim wants to recognize that. So he's saying, hey, let me just give you the field. But then why then does Abraham push back and say, you know, basically, thank you, but let me give you the full price of the field. What is that between you and me? Just let me pay you for the field. Now it could be, here that you're recognizing this as, you know, maybe you identify with times where somebody tried to give you something and it made you really uncomfortable, so you wanted to pay them for it. Because when somebody gives you something, that's a gift, that's a grace, and now you feel that you're on the hook. Where we don't understand grace, normally we try to repay it. Don't you often find yourself in that position? Someone wants to do something gracious for you, but all you can think of from the time you received it is how you're going to, in a very calculated way, pay it back to them so that it wasn't someone being gracious and someone being gracious to them, but it was an exchange of goods somehow because we're more comfortable with that. You can get even. Everybody wants to be even. But if you were tempted to think that Abraham is just trying to be even here, he just doesn't want to owe anybody any debt, you're kind of right, but you're probably not right in the way you think you are. Here's what's happening, 
and why we're given this text with such specific detail about the back and forth and about who is even around, who's witnessing this transaction that takes place. It's all the leaders of the city. We know that because it's happening in the city gate. And that's where all the leading men of the city, even officials, even kings, gather together to make important decisions in the ancient world. They gather at the city gate. So they gather here together, Abraham calls them all together, and all the people are witnessing as they go back and forth. Let me give you the land. No, let me pay for it. What's that between you and me? It's worth 400 shekels of, isn't that what he said, 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Just let me pay you the full price. Why are we given such specificity? Because Abraham doesn't want to owe them anything, but not for the sake of pride, but for the sake of legacy. At this point, Abraham doesn't own a square inch of land in Canaan. Not an inch of it. I know that may be a little bit like, oh, I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't thought of that because we just keep jumping from highlight to highlight to highlight, and it didn't occur to me that he's dwelling in tents all this time, never dwelling in a city. You remember what happened when Lot dwelled in a city? He went to go to try to be one of the people and live in their city and even be one of the men of the city gate. Went horribly wrong for him. He wasn't an exile as he was meant to be. He tried to become one of them. But Abraham, always aware of his exile nature, his exile stature in this place, that it was a place that was to be given to him, but he was not to assimilate into these people, he always remained a sojourner. 62 years of living in tents, never just building a house. So here now, he wants to own a piece of land. His mind here is not stuck, though, in just temporary things. This isn't him trying to rebound from the death of Sarah. This is him trying to make accommodation for the death of Sarah. He wants to buy a place where he can bury her. But it's about more even than just finding a place to bury his wife. It runs much deeper than that. It's of more significance than that. The purchase of this land was truly a declaration by Abraham. It had deep meaning. He wasn't just looking for a grave. He was faced with the pain of losing his wife, faced with this impending reality of his own mortality, and here he's seizing an opportunity. Seizing an opportunity after decades of living in Canaan as a sojourner to finally take possession of land. To finally take possession of it. His mind is not stuck in temporary suffering. What he understands here is that Sarah's death is not just passing pain, but it's actually timed and ordained by his sovereign God as a seed planted. You remember what Jesus says about seeds? Unless it falls to the ground and is buried and dies, it comes to nothing. But if it is buried and it dies, then it will grow up into something fruitful. And this is very much what's happening with Sarah's death. She 
dies and, and the flow of events that happens from her death creates an opportunity for Abraham to actually begin to possess land that was promised to him and his descendants. Land that he hadn't owned, he had only lived on. Now if that was all that was happening in the heart of Abraham, to find a grave for his wife, and even if it was just that it was going to be a grave that had some sense of legacy attached to it, that you all witnessed in the city gate with all the people gathered together, I paid the full price for this land, it is altogether mine and can be passed down as a heritage and an inheritance to my children. You're all witnesses. It wasn't given to me. There was nothing temporary. It wasn't a gift. But it is mine. Even if that was all, then that wouldn't really get to the real heart of what Abraham was seeking. He was seeking, again, something of eternal significance. We can track, at least for a few generations, that this grave became something very important to the Hebrew people and to Abraham and his family. Sarah was buried there. Abraham was buried there. Their son Isaac was buried there. Jacob was buried there. Very important to remember. It even set in motion a legacy of this land and burying people there. Joseph's bones were carried with Moses until they returned to the promised land and Joshua took them in and buried them in Canaan. There's something very rich about that legacy. Truly, this set in motion a course of events where they began to take possession of the land. Even when they couldn't live in the land, they owned a piece of it and eventually returned to it. But, again, I have to digress. There's something more in the heart of Abraham than just a place to bury their dead. More than just owning a plot of land so that they could stake claim to it. More than just about Hebrew territory. More even than about the promise that Abraham's descendants would possess this land. There's something deeper, something more eternal that Abraham is seeking here. In order to connect with that piece of Abraham's heart, what was in his mind, what he was journeying for, you have to go beyond Genesis chapter 3 and you have to turn again to Hebrews chapter 11. So I'm going to ask you to do that now. We've been looking to Hebrews chapter 11 a lot through this uh, Abraham account and we'll continue to look to Abraham, uh, sorry, to Hebrews to just fill in our understanding of what was happening in these days. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to ask you to look with me at verses 9 and 10. We might as well start at 8. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8. Now this is the writer of Hebrews describing the faith of all those who've gone before us. At the end of this, he says, uh, uh, sorry, at the beginning of chapter 12, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is all in the midst of the cloud of witnesses. All those 
fathers and mothers who've gone before us. So here in verse 8, we read of Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now listen to this. At this point in verse 9, you're thinking, yeah, I get it. He wanted to buy a piece of land to bury Sarah because this was setting in motion possession of the land of which he was promised. So he's just connected with what God had promised. But look, there's something more eternal in the heart of Abraham. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That is not speaking of something temporal. That's not speaking of something earthly. It's not speaking certainly of something Canaanite. What he's looking for there is something that God builds with his own hands. Now I'm going to ask you to jump down to verse 13 and read through verse 16 with me. These all, that is all these fathers and mothers who've gone before us, including Abraham, all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But Abraham did receive a plot of land, and he did bury Abraham. Uh, sorry, Sarah there. And in fact, Abraham was buried there, and his son and his grandson were all buried there. How is it that he didn't receive the thing promised? Well, because his descendants eventually were led back to the promised land by Moses, who didn't enter, but Joshua did, and they defeated a lot of enemies, and they became the inhabitants of the promised land. Well, but they've all died in faith also, not having received all that was promised. Because what we're looking forward to here is something greater than an earthly land and an earthly kingdom. The second half of verse 13, picking it up there. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth... On the earth, not just in a particular spot on the earth, but just by inhabiting the earth at all, they recognized that they were all strangers and exiles looking ahead to and seeking and greeting from afar things that were promised. Verse 14, for people who speak thus, that is, as exiles, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. They can go back to Ur. They can go back to Canaan. And yet there's something about this earth that's just void of home. They all greeted home from afar. They all thought of home as something they had not yet possessed, not yet owned at any price. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What kind of city? 
a heavenly city with foundations, a city that God has designed and God has built. So this is not this Genesis chapter 23 as much as it is about Abraham coming to realize the temporal nature of life, looking into the empty face of his dead wife, Sarah, whom he loved. What he was realizing here was a yearning, a yearning and a seeking, a sojourning, not for a plot of land, but for a heavenly country, a place where people don't die, a place where sin doesn't mar and disfigure and bring pain. He was seeking a better country, a heavenly one, and this was just a stepping stone in realizing that promise because, stick with me here, if Abraham doesn't purchase the land and establish a presence for his descendants, then what do they have to return to? And if they don't return, knowing that that is their land, that that is their heritage, that it's their possession, and Joshua doesn't lead them through and rout out their enemies and establish them as the people of God in this promised land, then where will Jesus be born? And if Jesus doesn't come into the world and he's not born into the promised land, into the city of David, Bethlehem, if he's not born there of a virgin, sinless, blameless, then from where does our Savior come? And if our Savior doesn't live this perfect life and even go to Jerusalem and he doesn't give himself up as a sacrifice for our sins in our place, murdered by the people who were supposed to possess this land in holiness, in righteousness, in waiting for the Messiah, if he doesn't give himself then who saves us? Who dies in our place? Whose blood is shed so that our sins would be forgiven? It's very important that Abraham did this faithful thing. It's very important that his mind wasn't just overcome with grief and he didn't just become this basket case grieving over his wife, but he still had a sense of purpose and a sense of eternity in his mind, in his heart. But I don't think even at this time, Abraham seeking an eternal home, a better country, a heavenly one with a heavenly king, I, I don't think Abraham could have realized exactly how wonderful and glorious and powerful the thing was that he was waiting for. But here's the beauty of us sitting in this room here together this morning. We're faced with the same death that Abraham has to face. We look death in the face every single day, don't we? Even those of us who aren't today sick and desperate and dying, or very close to someone who is, we feel even our bodies breaking down. We can feel that they're not what they were meant to be, that they don't have the glory that they should have, one day will have, that there's this sense of pining and yearning and seeking that's inside of us because we all, all of us who look to Christ, we are all, just as he was, sojourners, exiles in a broken place. Earth is not home. 
Now, I'll stop right there for just a moment before we move to just the greatest hope. But because we have that hope and because it's secure, because we know that this earth is not home, even as Abraham knew this was not his home, yet he stayed the course to see God accomplish his promises, to see God bring the gospel to light in Christ. We all are faced with this reality, which is harsh. Earth is not home, and God will not curse us by making us live in it forever. We all mourn and we all grieve when death comes around, but if we get down to the eternal things, aren't we so glad that death separates us from this broken world? That we get to be free from it, to go and be with the Lord? Like Paul says, I know that I'll have to remain with you here a little while longer, although my heart's desire is to go and be with Christ, for that is far better. We know that it's better to be free from this broken world. But we're faced with the reality that sin and death are a part of this temporary existence here. And what does that do to our hearts? What it should do, rather than discourage us or give us this attitude of flippance, well then, if it's all meaningless and we're all going to die, then let's just eat and drink and be merry. They're just going to bury me one day and I can't take anything with me. I might as well enjoy it now. That's not the Christian attitude as we face death. Rather, it's let's make everything of this life that we can in this broken world to shine the light of Christ and show them that this life here is not the end of life. Christ is better than this world. That's our mission here. But that we have a hope that transcends this world to be home with our hope. So we don't hold to this world. We don't cling to it. We don't need it. How often do we speak of need? Because if we don't have that thing we need, then we'll suffer in this world. Even die in this world. Please, just take a moment to recognize with me that there is one thing you need. His name is Jesus. If you have him, you have everything you need, and he cannot be taken from you. Now, do we all ache in our hearts as Abraham did for this heavenly country, this heavenly city? Do we all ache for it? I'll confess to you, just being honest, I don't ache for it every day. And I don't say that to glory in some kind of imperfection. Hey, I'm just one of you guys and whatever. I mean, we don't do that around here. We don't glory in our sin. But I confess to you that I don't live with a daily ache in my soul for that heavenly country. I'm still growing into that. Do we all know that we are sojourners and exiles in this broken world, I confess to you that I forget. I confess that I forget to look beyond this world, to remember that my hope is something that transcends this world.
I think in the last several years, there's something that the Lord has taught me, and it's those parts of my heart that struggle to cling to the hope that we have in the Scriptures and that, that cling to and submit to and enjoy the truth of the Scriptures, the power of God, that those parts of my heart that struggle to really connect with and identify myself with these things, that as I see them in myself, I can be very certain that most of you, if not all of you, struggle in the exact same ways. Not because it's not possible that I struggle in some way that you don't. I know there's many of you that I look to and respect and revere and, and hope to become like in some ways. But there are certain ways that we just all struggle. And this looking beyond the world for our identity and hope, this looking beyond this world as everything that there is, looking beyond this world as home, it's hard for us. It's hard for us in this flesh. But let me say, as much as we can confess that this is hard, it's hard to look beyond, it's hard to seek a better country, a heavenly city. If we have become followers of Christ, then this is our calling, this is our identity, this is to be our daily realization. We must let go of the love of this passing earth. I know that that's kind of a phrase that we sing and we pray and we say to each other, to let go of the things of the world, to not cling to the world, to not love the world. But come on, just stop and be real with me for a minute. For just a minute, can we stop this thing where there's a preacher and there's a sermon and there's a congregation and you're supposed to sit quietly and nod and agree and point at your Bibles and go, hmm. Can we just stop for a minute being in this very familiar routine and just recognize that if we were to believe everything the Bible said, we would live every day much differently than we do. Can we just give a good hearty amen to that? Can we just realize that if we understood what strangers and exiles we are in this world, that our identity is tethered to one who is better than and beyond and transcendent over, a king, in fact, over this world, that we would not live so attached to this world. All the things that we call need, we would have to start recategorizing. What, what do I need when we finally come to the place where we believe everything this says and find all of our hope and security only in Christ and find our home in Him only? What in the world would we categorize as need anymore? Only Him. Only Him. And what kind of freedom would that bring to our lives if we only need Christ and we can never lose Him and life in this world is guaranteed, ordained to be exactly what God means it to be until we get to be free from it, then what kind of abandonment would we live with for the glory of Christ? More abandonment. More abandonment. More hope. More security. 
We just know this to be true of us. Let's all just be there together in that space. But now here, let's just like Abraham did, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and all the prophets, and and all the disciples, and all those who were filled at the day of Pentecost, and all those baptized, and all those seeking to make disciples everywhere they went, and all of our church fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters throughout all of history, as they all realize, let us realize, that the one thing that will bring us a more deep and abiding awareness of our exile ship here in this world and our home in a better country, the one thing that can accomplish it in our hearts is the grace of God through the Holy Spirit working in us. We know that. We know there's nothing in ourselves that can just make us let go of this world and make us cling to Christ apart from the work of the Spirit inside of us. So then we have to be people who are well informed of our hope and well informed of what is going to bring us there. I'm going to ask you to do something that we do pretty often, uh, honestly, and it's read a really long passage of Scripture because there's no better way to say it. So turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. And I want to just enjoy together with you what it was that Abraham was greeting from afar, what it was that Abraham was yearning for in his heart, what it was that Christ died to give us the hope of. We are living here and now to glorify and honor God, to follow the way of Jesus as long as we're here. But we don't want to be uninformed about where our home is and who our King is. We know, even as that Thessalonians passage said this morning in the midst of our worship, that Christ is going to come with a shout of acclamation, a shout of triumph with the voice of an archangel, and his angels will be with him, and he'll come, and all those who have already died in Christ will be raised first, and they'll be raised up to glory with Christ, and then all those who remain alive at the return of Christ will be caught up with them, our our sinful nature will be eradicated, done away with, and our bodies will be made new by Christ, glorified, so that we'll have a body like his body. He'll make judgments. On his left hand, all those who failed to trust in him. On his right hand, all those who trusted in him. All those on his left will be sent away to destruction to to face the wrath of God against their sinfulness. All those on his right will be ushered into eternity with him. The hope that we're all living for. Sin and Satan will be crushed, will be vanquished, finally defeated eternally. And then, Revelation 21, John says in a vision, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out from heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gate twelve angels, and on the gates the number of the, uh, sorry, the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the, four, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, oh, sorry, chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, 
and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. This is our heavenly country. This is our eternal hope. To be with Christ forever in the city that has foundations designed and built by God. It was what Abraham yearned for. It's what our hearts yearn for. We know that Christ has died and he was raised and he stands at the right hand of the Father giving the Spirit to those who trust in him and that the Spirit is the seal of our inheritance that we would inherit this city and live with God forever as his people. What a hope. What a hope that transcends this life. What a hope that overshadows this life. Christ died to make us his own. And now we're called to live in light of what he's done and who he's called us to be. So, the theme here is to be the people of God waiting for our better hope and our better country. Let's seek it by the power of His Spirit working in us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.